who are at the risk of um, burdening everyone with even more practices and information, uh, another useful, skillful means, I thought, to share with everyone is a, uh, a method of practice back in, uh, in 1981 when uh, Lumpur Sumedho introduced this teaching on uh, asking the question, who am I, to the Sangha, the very early days of uh, Chithurst Monastery, Chittaviveka in, in Sussex in southern England, uh, along with the, the investigation of who am I, then he also introduced uh, what is called the Nada Yoga, or in, uh, listening to the inner sound. And uh, this was a, a practice that uh, he didn't realize there was any kind of a tradition or, or um, system around this, but uh, he had noticed uh, in his own experience that even when they were living in London, the group came from Thailand in 1977, and f- first couple of years they lived in a small vihara in, uh, in Hampstead, on Haverstock Hill in Hampstead, in London. And in, in those days, London was the kind of town that stopped at about 11 or half past 11 at night. So uh, from midnight onwards, it was, it was very quiet. <laughs> the buses didn't run, there was very few cars. And, and the, particularly in the winter, when there was snow around, he noticed that he was sitting late at night, he would hear this uh, continuous inner sound in the background of, uh, of his hearing. And um, he realized that that was something that was ever-present and he could concentrate on it. And he's quite an experimental Dhamma practitioner and uh, he liked to explore things. So he wondered, oh, well, this inner sound seems to be here all the time. And I said, I wonder if you can use this uh, like the breathing or like walking meditation or like a a mantra um, to meditate on. So he experimented with it for a few years. And uh, he realized that the more you concentrate on it, the louder it gets. It never seems to have a beginning or an end. You never hear it start or stop. You can ignore it. You can be distracted and be paying attention to other things. But if you turn your attention to this uh, continuous high-pitched sound, it's always there. So before he started talking about it or teaching uh, this as a method, he experimented a lot with it uh, himself. And then around the same time that he began to teach about using the question, who am I, then he introduced this inner listening, this listening to the, the sound. Uh, nada is the Sanskrit word for sound, so, or Brahma Nada, the divine sound, Nada Yoga, uh, the yoga of sound. Interestingly, in Spanish, it means nothing. Nada, 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 nada. <laughs> it's a convenient or interesting coincidence. You can read into it uh, as you wish, but... Uh, uh, St. John of the Cross, San Juan de la Cruz, uh, uh, he spelled out the, 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 the most direct way up um, Mount Carmel, the, the spiritual mountain, is uh, nothing, 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 nada, 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 and even on the mountain, nada. <laughs> so letting go of everything. So anyway, uh, Anjan Sumato had experimented with this um, just within himself uh, for a, a couple of years, and uh, he also recollected that um, he had never noticed it in Thailand because you do most of your meditation at night time in the forest and it's absolutely filled with the sound of crickets <laughs> and the, the, the forest is very much alive at night and in the heat of the day things go a bit more quiet but the monks go a bit more quiet in the day as well so 
but you're doing a lot of meditation at night time. And this inner sound sounds a ra- rather a lot like the crickets <laughs> kind of uh, ringing away in the, in the forest night. Um, so he'd never noticed it in Thailand. Um, but then he realized that when he was in the U.S. Navy, he was an extremely unhappy um, sailor in the U.S. Navy in the, in the 1950s. Uh, he was a medic on a, on a ship going across the Pacific for four years. Uh, and um, he was having a very difficult time uh, as a, uh, a, a petty officer in the U.S. Navy. And at uh, one time he was on shore leave and he went for a, a walk in the hills. It was in, in San Diego. The ship had, uh, had docked in San Diego at that time. He went off for a walk in the hills by himself. And uh, quite spontaneously, his mind went into this very, very peaceful, concentrated state. And this inner sound was very, very loud. And he, he'd forgotten about that. And he said he had no idea how long this, that experience lasted. It might have been five minutes. It might have been three hours. It was just a timeless experience. And... Uh, and so he wasn't even a Buddhist at that point. It was before he'd really uh, he'd c- come across any Buddhist literature. The, the the first Buddhist teachings he read were D.T. Suzuki uh, again while he was in the Navy. But at that point, he had no no knowledge of Buddhism and uh, no no background for this. But he recollected that was very very peaceful, very very bright, very clear state of mind. And this inner sound was very very strong. So then, as he began to hear it in London in these sort of winter nights during long periods of meditation in the Hampstead Vihara, and he started experimenting with it, he realized, well, you don't just hear it when you're sitting in the quiet of the night. You can actually hear it while you're on the London Underground <laughs> or even sort of walking down the street. He said, uh, I found it was difficult if there was a pneumatic drill. <laughs> that was <laughs> more challenging when it was a really loud noise. But he realized, oh, it's always here. It doesn't switch off, even in the midst of activity and movement and other sensory things, that if you pay attention. Like I can hear it right now as I'm talking to all of you. If you develop the listening to it, it's a, like a, a constant presence. So he, uh, he experimented with it for two or three years, and, and then he realized, okay, this, this seems to be workable, seems to be useful. And he began to teach it in combination with this um, practice of, uh, of investigating the, the kung an, the question, who am I? So that uh, in that particular formation, then uh, letting the mind be as still as possible and listening to the inner sound, letting that inner sound fill the, the space of the mind and then into that space, then dropping the question, you know, who am I? And then the, the ringing silence... The nada uh, carries on, uh, even while there is that disappearance of the the feeling of self and and uh, so on and so forth. And then you know the, the thinking and conceptualizing usually begins again. But uh, you can use this um, listening to the inner sound uh, in combination with that that kind of inquiry. When he first taught it, he he taught with them together. But you can also use it uh, on its own without using the inquiry. And you can use it as a concentration object, just uh, like for samadhi, for absorption, to exclusion of everything else. Or you can use it uh, to support uh, insight practice, just being a, a backdrop to all experience. So I found um, 
This was very helpful. I had never really noticed it before, made much of it, um, and then realized, oh, this is, this is very helpful. It's an interesting and uh, valuable alternative to mindfulness of breathing, if you want a concentration object. And one of the attributes that it has, most people find, is that um, the more you listen to it, the louder it gets, or the, the more noticeable it is. So there's a positive feedback loop also in that uh, not only is it clearer, but also it energizes the mind so that the, the mind gets, gets brighter and more attentive. So particularly if you have problems with sleepiness and the breath tends to make you, you nod off, then if you use the inner listening as a practice, then it helps to, to brighten the, the, the arousal, the, the energy factor of the mind. Another aspect of it that's, that's quite helpful, the breath does respond to personal will and choice. You can choose to breathe in or breathe out. You can choose to breathe deeply or in a shallow way. But you, know, you can't do anything with the inner sound. You can't make it louder or quieter. You can't make it stop or start. Or, you know, I can't do anything with it. So that non-responsiveness to personal will, that, that it's not controllable uh, or affectable by any intention or, or choice from, from the, the, the jitta, it tends to support the quality of receptivity. That sense of you, you're hearing it, you're receiving it, but you can't do anything with it. You can't change it or alter it or... or so that the, there's much less of a sense of ownership or, or control or personal involvement, uh, but uh, it supports that sense of, of receptivity, uh, of, uh, of listening. And like the, I was talking about uh, listening as the, the heart of compassion practice or the receptive aspect of, of compassion. So that, that uh, non-controllability or that non-responsivity to personal will is a, is a helpful attribute of it. Also, in a way, it's a it's a uh, a good symbol. It's a, it's a sense activity. It's a sense perception, but it's a good symbol of the the dhamma itself. It's kind of apparent here and now. Yes, <laughs> if you pay attention to it, it's always here. <laughs> apparent here and now, sentitiko, akaliko. It's timeless, so that uh, that's not affected by time. It's it's uh, it's ever present. Ehi uh, pasiko. Another of the attributes of the Dhamma is that uh, uh, ehi means come, here, here. Uh, it's an invitation, ehi. The, the original form of invitation, uh, of ordination for monks was ehi bhikkhu. The Buddha saying, come bhikkhu. Like that, that was the whole ordination procedure. Ehi, come. Um, ehi pasiko means come and see. Pasati is the verb to see. So it invites one to pay attention. It invites one to to be attentive to it. Opanaiko, leading inwards. Uh, another of the, the attributes of this, and one of the reasons I wanted to mention it today, uh, is it fits together very closely, not just with the, the Who Am I practice, but also with the recollection of the world as being the world as a uh, collection of formations that are, are known in consciousness, the world as seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, that uh, the ever-present quality of that sound, the inner sound, not for everybody, but for, uh, for most people, it can be used as a, like a backdrop for experience, helping to remind us, oh, this is all a mental event. 
This is woven together from seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, remembering, you know, language and concept. Weave it all together and boop, here we are. Manjushri Hall, Deer Park Institute, Wednesday afternoon at 13 minutes past five, 7th of December. <laughs> Ding, it's like this. But that's woven together from the six senses and so that the presence of that sound as a kind of screen against which all of the the other sense activity is uh, is displayed like a like a backdrop or a screen like a, that a movie is projected onto it's like a, a noticeable uh, backdrop or, or screen on which the rest of the sensory field is is displayed so in some spiritual traditions they make a lot of this sound and say oh this is the song of the universe or this is the brahma this is the divine sound this is the voice of the brahmas or this is the the vibration of the universe and they kind of build it up a lot uh, I, I once saw a um, when i was living in the states a a weekend retreat the uh, price for the weekend was five thousand dollars so you're getting things pretty cheap here i think $5,000 for a weekend, the promotion in the advert was, was like, this is incredible, this is life transforming, this is fantastic, this is this will change your world completely. And uh, they were sort of pumping it up and inflating it. And, I f and then I found out that the practice that was taught, that was this kind of great transformative, totally liberating um, change in your life, was Nadi Yoga. <laughs> $5,000 for a weekend, I thought. Well, I guess if you can get away with it. <laughs> yeah good for you but uh, well I didn't really think that I thought what it's outrageous <laughs> I won't say who was who was the teacher of it but it's a very well-known name uh, and so it can be inflated as all well, you know if you can hear this sound this means you're totally enlightened but uh, uh, at the other end of the spectrum if you're a, more of a, a, a doctor or an ear nose and throat specialist or <laughs> Or a neurologist, you say, oh, this is just the, the, the firing of the, the neurons in the ear. It's just the, the waving of the little cilia in the, in the ear uh, construction that is sort of sending out these uh, electrical impulses. It's just a biological function. It's nothing mysterious or magical or special. From the very beginning, when Ajahn Sumedha first started teaching this, he said, whether it's just a, a, a kind of buzzing in your ears from the, ele the electricity of your your nervous system, uh, the auditory nerve, or whether it's uh, the song of the universe or the music of the spheres, the, 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 in the Greek philosophical tradition, uh, it's, uh, seemingly it was known as the music of the spheres, like the spheres of the, uh, the planets as they moved around each other in the cosmos. There's, call it what you like, you can hear it. <laughs> That's the important thing. You don't have to attribute any kind of cosmic or special or biological qualities to it. The fact is, it's around, like the breath. You can think of the breath as the, the rhythm of the universe, or you can think of it as just respiration, you know, because we rely on aerobic respiration to live as human beings. So it's just a biological function, or it could be symbolic of the, the rhythm of the universe. Um, so the encouragement was, well, keep it simple. <laughs> Just the fact that for most people this can be heard, it can, can be discerned, and you can put it to use both to support insight practice and uh, the practice of concentration. Oh, I would also say it's not everybody can, can hear this very easily. That some, some people, I don't know what he's talking about. This I've never heard anything like that. This is completely outside my scope of experience. 
Other people are like, you know, you want to listen to that? I can't get it to shut up. Uh, again, when I was living in the States, I, I was leading a day-long meditation on this uh, inner listening, this theme. And uh, this fellow came up, um, and he's kind of smiling, and, uh, and he said, I'm really angry with you, but he was smiling at the same time. And I said, oh, interesting. And he said, yeah, I spent $20,000 going to doctors, getting this treated. And in one day, you've described how, rather than it being a medical problem, I can make it work for me. So I want my money back. <laughs> so he's kind of joking and laughing about it, but it's like he'd been hearing it and thinking of it as a terrible uh, intrusive problem. He wanted to get it to shut up. Uh, but... Uh, just by changing the attitude, it didn't change the volume or the, the presence of it, but it, the, the attitude was this can be put to work rather than just being seen as an unwelcome intruder. I'm also aware that some people experience tinnitus, which is seemingly a very, very a super loud version uh, of this same sound, which can be quite oppressive and, and burdensome, stressful. So um, if you already experience tinnitus and there's this kind of roaring train going in your in your head the, the whole time, then um, it's probably not a good practice for you. <laughs> so uh, stay with the, the breathing in that case, because uh, if you pay attention to it, it will sort of be more intense and, and be more noticeable naturally. So uh, uh, there, there are these aspects to it. If it's impossible to, to discern it at all, um, sometimes that lack of, of discerning it as a sound, it, it can be because we've emphasized another of the sense doors more fully or more completely. Uh, so when uh, Ajahn Sumedha was teaching this uh, to a group of um, uh, meditation teachers in, in the States when he was visiting um, our monastery, a Payagiri monastery in California and, and teaching at, a, at Spirit Rock Center, teaching the group of, uh, of the Dhamma teachers there. One of them said, Ajahn, I don't hear this at all, but I feel it. You know, I, I, it's not a sound, but all the instruction you're giving, all the description, it matches exactly this feeling I have in my body the whole time. What is that? And he, and he said, uh, what kind of work do you do? And she said, I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> well, because you've, you've spent a lot of attention focusing on the body and body awareness, that's the, the sense door that's been most emphasized in your work, in your life, in your practice. And so that's where this is most discernible. Um, uh, another time, uh, a, a different retreat that I was leading, uh, a fellow said a similar thing. He said, I, I don't hear this, but I see it. And, the, and there's this uh, oscillation of the visual field. If I pay attention, the, the visual field has always got this, this very subtle vibration or oscillation in it. And, I, and so following Ajahn Sumedho's lead, I said, so what kind of work do you do? And he said, oh, I'm a graphic artist. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. Because he's developed the eye, uh, the world of vision more completely, so that's where uh, that particular quality was most easily sensed. And uh, after that dialogue with this uh, yoga teacher at Spirit Rock Center, then right away Ajahn Sumedho started languaging things differently. And so instead of talking about the the inner sound, he started talking about the inner vibration. And so that sometimes if you explore, you can, you can pick this up in different ways. And so um, as a kind of tingling in your fingers or in your skin or in different ways. Um. So these are some aspects of this uh, inner listening. Again, there's a little booklet on this called Inner Listening. Uh, this isn't the kind of big self-promotion program, but 
I kind of got tired of giving the same spiel over and over and over again, to the, saying the same things. And so I put it all in a, a little booklet. So if you're interested, that's called Inner Listening, and you can find that also on the Amravati website. Uh, if you are trying to listen to this inner sound and it's not findable at all, and you know, don't worry, it's uh, it's not anything lacking. But just uh, use the the kind of practices we've been describing already. It's just uh, if it's if it's accessible, if it's discernible, then it can be a, a helpful, uh, skillful means. If you plug your ears, then I think the sound is great. Yeah. Or if you're in a, a bath of water, if you put your, your head under, the ears under the water, then you can easily hear it pretty loudly. If you find that when you concentrate, uh, you're using the, the mindfulness of breathing, uh, as, a, as that's been your favored mode or what you've been doing for years and years, um, and particularly, I found that if you're getting very concentrated, your mind gets very, very quiet. Oftentimes, the breath gets very, very subtle or very slow, or there's long gaps between each in-breath and out-breath. And, um, and so there can be the sense of, well, I'm trying to concentrate on my breath, but it's kind of not around a lot of the time. <laughs> the air is not moving. And so I'm trying to, to follow the, the practice of mindfulness of breathing, but... Everything is so quiet, so still, the, the breath is so spacious or so quiet, or you're just having a, a few breaths uh, every minute. Then you can use this listening to the inner sound because it's far more consistent, and, uh, and so that uh, that's a, a useful tool to use. Um, one of the questions the other day was about uh, concentration and if you are playing music or... or um, if you are a writer or an artist getting super concentrated on, on the, um, the work that you're doing, uh, is that similarly wholesome as the concentration in meditation? I'm reminded of meeting someone who was on the staff at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and he had uh, been a concert pianist. And uh, at the end of this 10-day retreat that I was leading, it had been arranged that he was doing a little kind of a workshop in the town of Barry, Massachusetts, on meditation and music, and uh, he was um, he was using the example of Chopin's Étude, and these these kind of Étude, which means is a French word for study. Chopin had composed these Études as kind of exercises for himself to kind of develop his his skill and his mindfulness and his flexibility. And I don't know a lot about music, but it would be. Some of these pieces, um, you have, you'd have like the, the right hand playing a 7-4 time and the, the left hand doing an 8-3 time. And then uh, at the, a certain point in the, in, the, in the piece, then it would switch over and, the, and this would go to a 5-4 time and that would go to a 13-5 you know, time. And Chopin deliberately made these incredibly difficult to sort of test his skill and improve his kind of, okay, what impossible thing can I think of today? And so this, this uh, gentleman was playing some of these at um, Inside Meditation Society and uh, describing you know, how the music was put together and how this um, was formed as a kind of concentration exercise. And uh, so he had, as I said, been a, been a concert pianist before he went to, to, to live and, uh, and work at, uh, at the meditation center. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he found 
that he was much more able to concentrate than most other people who are fairly new to meditation. He was far more skilled at concentration. And he thought, well, you know, I'm just a confused American, middle-aged American guy. <laughs> How come this meditation is so easy for me? Like, I, I just seem to get super concentrated super quickly. And then uh, talking with the teachers there, he realized, oh, it's because <laughs> this kind of... Uh, training I've had, you have to be absolutely focused you know, all the time and so that the, the work of, of being uh, attentive to the music and, and getting all the notes exactly right and, and also in tune with the spirit of the music was, was, a, a, was a natural uh, skill and helped the mind to, to concentrate and uh, you know, the reason that it comes to mind is because um, with people were asking him questions about his uh, a little bit about the music, but mostly about his meditation experience. And uh, he said, well, um, so how is it when you get very, very concentrated? And he said, well, um, so I decided to uh, to actually make a point of, of measuring how much my breath moved during a, a period of meditation. And uh, so we were thinking, okay, maybe his breath goes down to like, you know, to, you know, 10 or 15 breaths uh, uh, a minute during this you know during the the time that he's meditating and so he, so someone said so so uh, when you're very very concentrated how much did your breath move and he said um, in an hour there was half an inhalation so the, the room went very quiet at that point <laughs> he said yes I wasn't after you know I looked at the clock and then went into a, a concentrated state and an hour went by, and I was halfway through the in-breath. So the breath can really, really slow down. <laughs> and it's, it can seem to disappear altogether. Uh, so actually staying with the feeling of the breath can be quite challenging, but th um, th this is a, a very uh, uh, say usable alternative, if that's something that one can hear. Not that uh, that's very common, that people's breath goes quite so slow, quite so quiet. But it can happen. And so sometimes it can be quite frightening. Again, oh my goodness, I've stopped breathing. And then feeling that there's something wrong. But that's very natural uh, and ordinary that uh, as the mind gets more concentrated, the need for oxygen diminishes. So uh, the body's own intelligence says, okay, you just don't need so much air, so just slow it all down. These are our few thoughts to share uh, to end the afternoon so we can end things there for today.